page 1547, Matthew chapter 26, verses 17 to 56. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him the teacher says, My appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go, just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hum, they went to out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go, here comes my betrayer. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd, armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man, arrest him. Going at once to Judas, to Jesus, Judas said, 
Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of the Jesus one of with that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Thanks, Joe. Well, over the last few weeks, we've been working our way through Matthew's Gospel, looking at the person and the work of Jesus. And together we've seen that much of Matthew's Gospel is about this big idea or this key theme of the Kingdom of Heaven. This idea that Matthew's Gospel is about the kingly rule of Jesus. We've seen Jesus enter into his city as king, enter into Jerusalem. We've seen Jesus urging people to accept his invitation to join them in his kingdom. And last week we were reminded without a doubt that this king will one day return to this earth to rule where everyone will know that he is king. There's a problem in our story, isn't there? The king is about to die. That's a problem because, by definition, kings are triumphant and proud and almost arrogant. If Jesus is a real king, we should expect that one day he will do just as he said he would in last week's passage, that he would rule universally and powerfully and justly. Yet the king in Matthew's gospel... He looks anything but victorious and proud and triumphant as we get to these last few chapters of Matthew's Gospel. In fact, he's on his way to his execution. And death is so final, isn't it? It's so painful and it seems sometimes to be so pointless. I think most of us probably kind of acknowledge the reality of death that awaits those who have lived a long and a full life, but when someone dies younger than they're supposed to be, dies early, we want to know why, don't we? Imagine that this week many of us have spent some time praying about or reflecting on the life of Steph Lockery. She died this week as a young woman, a person who should have been in the prime of her life. Yet Steph died confident, knowing where she was going, safe in the arms of her father. And yet it's right, isn't it, to cry out to God, why? Why God? Why Steph? She was doing great gospel work. She was a much-loved friend. She was a much-loved daughter. 
Have you ever wondered why Jesus had to die? He didn't die as an old man. He died on the cross in his early 30s. Why did Jesus have to die? Well, here's the big idea that I'd like you to take away and chew over this week in the lead up to Easter. The big idea is that Jesus' death was not just a pointless act of violence, rather it was a death according to his Father's will, that his death was a kingly death for sinners. I want to suggest it was far from pointless. Indeed, it was the way in which God justly deals with a broken world and broken sinful people. Let me show you how I get there from our passage today. But the first thing I want you to see is that Jesus, as a king, he knew where he was going. His death is no surprise to him. Because we've been focusing just on small sections of Matthew's gospel over the last couple of weeks, you you might have missed this movement in the story. So I'd love you to spend some time in the next week just rereading Matthew's gospel in the lead up to Easter. Why don't you read through chapters 19 to 27 over the next few days? And what I think you'll see in there is that Jesus knows where he's heading. He knows that he's going to the cross. He knows he'll soon be killed. Now, to see this clearly, I'd love you to flick back in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. I'd love us to have a look at verse 21. It's on page 1528. Matthew chapter 16 verse 21 and let me just read these verses this verse to you it says from that time on Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders the chief priests and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life It's not just once off that he does that. Cast your eyes just over the page to chapter 17, verse 22. There you'll see Jesus again reminding his disciples of his impending death and his resurrection. Comes up again in chapter 20. And here's my point. For Jesus, his death is not a surprise. He knows it'll happen. And instead of kind of turning and running away into the wilderness to escape what lies ahead he meets it head on resolutely almost why does he do that why is he so resolutely willing to walk towards his death for most of us we do everything we possibly can to avoid death so why is Jesus willing to walk towards it I've got two answers to that question in our leaflet today. The first is all about forgiveness and the second is all about justice. If you've got your leaflet uh, with you, if you open up to the inside, you'll see that outline there. Let's start with this idea of forgiveness. In the last supper that we read about in our passage today, Jesus tells his disciples that his blood will be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. We see that in verses 26 through to verse 29 of chapter 26. In these verses, Jesus is sharing that first communion meal with his disciples. Let me read these words to you again. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, 
He broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, we know these words quite well today. They seem a little bit familiar to us because we say these words or similar set of words when we commemorate that Last Supper together, when we uh, take part in our communion service once a month. We're familiar with these words, but just pause for a minute and think about what Jesus' disciples might have felt on that first night. They were expecting at some point to have Jesus lead them through what would have been familiar words for them, the Passover meal. After all, in verses 17 and 18, that seems to be the plan for their evening together. While they were eating, though, Jesus takes bread, as he would have in the Passover celebration, but now he uses a very different set of words to what they used to. There's no reference here as there would have been in the Passover meal about the bread or the manna that fell from heaven as part of the Passover celebration, but instead Jesus refers to his own body and blood. Last week I introduced you to a quote from a a commentator called Michael Green. I really like what he says about these verses as well. I'm paraphrasing a little, but this is kind of his thrust. He says, Jesus' followers are to feed on him just as the Jews fed on the Passover meal. His separation of body and blood point to his death and a violent death at that. The disciples are to be nourished by depending on that death. So what he's trying to say here is that Jesus' death is not pointless, rather it provides nourishment It's a death that provides us with life in its fullness because it's about forgiveness. So Jesus takes the cup and he speaks of his blood as the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do you know what a a covenant is? It's not a word that we use too much today, is it? Essentially, it kind of means a promise. The covenant or the promises that God had with his people plays a major role in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God's people were to keep the covenant promises that they had made. It was part of their deal in being God's chosen people. Here we see Jesus pointing to a new covenant. Not a covenant of obedience, but one of forgiveness. What I think Jesus is doing here is making reference to the prophet, Isaiah, uh, prophet Jeremiah. In uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, some interesting words about a new covenant that God will make with his people. They're very interesting words. I'd love you to turn with me to Jeremiah 31. It's on page 1,230 of your Bibles, if you'd like to go there with me. As you turn there, let me just tell you, this is the prophet Jeremiah speaking about what God has told him to say. Jeremiah 31, verse 31 says, The days are coming, remember Jeremiah's in the Old Testament times, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors, 
when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbour or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. The new covenant is a covenant of forgiveness. And that forgiveness is brought about by Jesus' blood being poured out. So here's what I think Jesus is kind of saying. His death, the pouring out of his blood, is the start of a new age, an age where forgiveness of sins is really and truly possible. It's a new age where Jesus' death brings forgiveness and cleansing and enables each one of us who trust in that death to draw near to God. Why did Jesus have to die? Why did his blood have to be poured out? We see here the first of many reasons that his death enables real, true forgiveness. The second thing I want you to see from our passage today is that his death is a death for sinners in the sense that it brings about justice. It's this idea of justice that I think leads to the intense anguish that Jesus faces in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember I said before, Jesus knows he's about to die. He knows he's about to die a terrible death under excruciating circumstances. He knows he's about to be mocked and taunted and then painfully executed. It would make all of us wince and be worried about what's to come. Yet I think there's more at stake in these passages than just Jesus' physical pain and his physical death that's causing him concern. I think Jesus knows he's about to pay the price for sin. And that's what makes his death different. Ever wonder why Jesus' death is different to everybody else's? Here, I think, is at least part of the answer to that question. His death was a death for sin. I did my theological study at a college in Melbourne. It takes its name from another man who was killed for his faith. His name was Nicholas Ridley. That's what Ridley College was named after. Nicholas Ridley was the chaplain to King Henry VIII. He was also the Bishop of London. History tells us that he was a great man of God. He was well-versed in scripture and also a great man of faith and conviction. He was friends with another bishop at the time. His name was Hugh Latimer. Ridley and Latimer had a wonderful and tremendous influence on Christianity in England, particularly during the Reformation years. But, But today they're known not so much for the life that they lived, rather for the death that they had. Both Ridley and Latimer were burnt together on a stake in Oxford on the 16th of October, 1555. And the story goes about how they faced their death with extraordinary resolve. 
as the flames licked up through the burning prior that they were strapped to, Ridley is supposed to have said these words. I think I've got them on the screen up here. He's supposed to have said, O heavenly Father, I give unto thee most heartily thanks that thou hast called me to be a professor of thee, even unto death. I beseech thee, Lord God, have mercy on this realm of England and deliver it from all her enemies. Pretty amazing words to be saying while the flames are burning around your feet, aren't they? Ridley is giving thanks to God for his calling as a professor of Jesus and doing it even unto his death. You might have heard of Hugh Latimer before. He also had some famous words to say as he was strapped to that stake. Latimer says this, he says, Be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust never shall be put out. See, in in Ridley and Latimer, we have two great examples, don't we, of Christians facing death with resolute expectation and and tremendous hope as well. They're not alone either. It's a hope that has sat with the estimated 70 million people who have been martyred for their faith. Many have died according to the Father's will. Latimer and Ridley are just two of those 70 million. So what is it that makes Jesus' death different? He was certainly no ordinary man. He was the Son of God. That is, of course, part of our answer. But I think we see another part of that answer in the Garden of Gethsemane where we see Jesus, who is fully man and with all that entails, yet also the Son of God, pleading with his Father for the cup to be taken away. That cup, I think, plays a a big part in our understanding of what's going on here. I want to suggest this morning that that cup represents the wrath and the judgment of God that accompanies Jesus' death on the cross. I want you to see that Jesus' death was no ordinary death, if there's such a thing as an ordinary death, but that it was a death for sinners and it brought with it justice. Let me read to you from verse 36 of chapter 26 of Matthew where we see this. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. We see in these verses the anguish that accompanies Jesus as he heads towards the cross. It's an anguish that drives him to pray to his Father. My Father, he says, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. 
It's the cup, isn't it, that Jesus seems to be recoiling from, shrinking from. In the Old Testament, the cup is used to symbolize both judgment and the wrath of God. Let me show you that from Isaiah 51. I've got the verses, I think, up on the screen, perhaps, maybe not. Um, Let me read them to you. Isaiah 51 says, Awake, awake, rise up, Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes people stagger. See here the cup being equated to the wrath of God. And again in Ezekiel, we see the cup as having something to do with judgment. It's in Ezekiel chapter 23, where it says, You will drink your sister's cup, a cup large and deep. It will bring scorn and derision, for it holds so much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, the cup of ruin and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. You will drink it and drain it dry and chew on its pieces and you will tear your breasts. See, if in the Old Testament the cup is kind of equated to the wrath or the punishment of God for sin, we can probably see why Jesus is so anxious about drinking it here in the Garden of Gethsemane. You can see why he goes to the Father, praying that it would be removed. One of the New Testament scholars puts it something like this. He says, If in the Old Testament the use of the cup is predominantly to do with God's punishment for human sin, then the cup from which Jesus shrinks from is God's wrath. So can you see in these verses then Jesus pleading with his father, not just that his death would be averted, but he's also asking, is there another way? Any other way that the father's wrath can be poured out apart from on the son he loves? Is there another way for justice to be done and sins to be dealt with? So here's the reality. Jesus' death is a death like no other because because it's a death for sinners. (coughs) Both Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, like Jesus, they faced a terrible death. But as terrible as Ridley and Latimer's death was, it's only Jesus who died for God's righteous judgment. And that's what makes his death different. It's this aspect of his death that makes a way for reconciliation. And yet it was costly for him. I hope you can see in this passage the cost for Jesus. It's a cost in the end of his life. So what then are we to do with these passages, having read them together today? I've put in your leaflet perhaps two ways in which we might respond to Jesus. I think part of it is that we should respond with great thankfulness. And the second way I think we should respond is to really consider Jesus' words as he urged us to join him in the kingdom. But perhaps one other thing we should think about is how do you respond when you face great trials of significance? Matthew portrays here how Jesus dealt with his 
own anguish of the certain pain that was to come, how does Jesus respond? He goes to the Father in prayer and he asks that his Father's will would be done. It's a good model for us to engage with, isn't it? Of course, it's never easy for us to do this. It might not be our natural response. But here in the Garden of Gethsemane, I think we see a wonderful model for how we might face trials in our life. That we'd come to God with heartfelt prayer, asking that God's will would be done. And I should mention as well here that note that Jesus comes to God and he asks for exactly what he wants. Please take this cup away from me, if that is your will. The prayer ends by asking that the Father's will would be done. These passages also, I think, show us what Jesus felt like in the lead up to his death. We see in these words that he was tremendously worried about what was to come. This week, as I've read through these words, I've been spurned on to ensure that I'm giving thanks to Jesus for what he's done. The pain that he bore. I think it's why there's so many songs that are written that thank Jesus for his work on the cross. It's a great opportunity, isn't it, as we think about this, for us to give thanks to the Father for what the Son has done for us. Can I encourage you over the next few days to take some time to reread these words at the end of Matthew's Gospel and use these words to shape a prayer of thanksgiving for what Jesus has done. And lastly, I want to suggest that I think there's one more way in which we should respond to what Jesus has done for us and for the cost that his death was for him. I hope you're encouraged, having read these words, to reconsider Jesus' earlier call to enter into his kingdom. See, it's a kingdom that cost him his life, a kingdom for which he drank that bitter cup. And so it demonstrates his love for us as his people. He wants us to repent. He wants us to turn to him so that we might enter into his kingdom. This Easter we're going to be asking the question, who is this man? Who is this man, Jesus? Today we've seen that he's a man who was willing to give up his life to drink the cup of wrath because it's his father's will. That's what a kingly death looks like. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your son who was faithful to you even to the point of his own death. He was faithful to you in drinking the cup of wrath and punishment Thank you that his blood was poured out for our forgiveness. We thank you that that means that we can know you and call you our Father. That because of what Jesus has done, we have a a sure place in your family. Father, we're so thankful that Jesus did these things for us. We ask that you would help us to praise him. That the knowledge of what he's done would drive us to worship him. And that we would do it in a way that brings you glory and honour. 
And Father, we pray that you would help us to live for you, to use our lives to bring glory to you and your Son. Amen.